surviving and thriving from the adult child trauma syndrome. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deep, or shall I say, diving deeper into complex PTSD. Now, this is another episode where there probably won't be as many laughs as some of the other ones. This episode is fucking heavy, y'all. It may stir up some unpleasant emotions. Perhaps you don't listen to it all in one sitting. Regardless, it is so important that we talk about this subject. I'm going to be sharing with you more about my personal experience with complex PTSD. And then I have an amazing interview with Shannon, the founder and creator of Surviving Childhood Trauma, which is a support community for victims of childhood sexual abuse. But before we proceed, I do want to provide a little bit of a high-level general overview on complex PTSD for anyone out there saying, what the fuck is complex PTSD? Now, the PTSD that most of us are familiar with is a mental condition resulting from a short-lived, intense, traumatic experience. A soldier being in war, your house burning down, a horrible car accident, being sexually assaulted— And complex PTSD is a mental condition resulting from continual and repetitive stressful or traumatic events occurring during childhood. And this includes things that perhaps some people might not even consider as trauma, such as insidious forms of emotional abuse or neglect. And someone suffering from complex PTSD will typically suffer from all the same symptoms as regular PTSD, such as flashbacks, hypervigilance, insomnia. And then there are some additional symptoms that they will suffer from, which are typically not applicable to regular old PTSD. And that is difficulty controlling emotions, difficulties in intimate relationships, and a diminished sense of self, i.e. low self-esteem, low self-worth. And generally speaking, the impact of experiencing trauma early in life is more severe than a single traumatic experience in adulthood, and that is because of the brain. When an adult experiences a traumatic event, they have more tools to understand what is happening to them due to the fact that their brain is fully developed. But when a child experiences trauma, They do not have all the tools in place to make sense of what is happening because their brain is still developing. The brain recognizes the trauma, but the related emotions are not processed, which has some serious psychological ramifications that can last a lifetime unless treatment is sought. Now, over the past 20 years, MRI studies have shown that childhood trauma negatively impacts the development of several key parts of the brain, including the amygdala, the part of the brain that is responsible for processing fear, the hippocampus, the part of the brain responsible for processing emotions, memory, and stress management, and the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain responsible for decision-making and self-regulatory skills. Listen, I am not a neurologist. I'm not sure if that is just shock to anyone, 
but I'm not going to get into any more of the nitty gritty of the brain, but I will provide some resources in the show notes for you to learn more about this. I would also like to recommend a book that recently came out. It is called What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. And it is by child psychiatrist Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah. And it dives into all of this. Y'all, I sent Dr. Perry an email last week asking him to be a guest on the pod. I actually posted a TikTok video promoting the book, which has like over 20,000 views. And so, of course, I mentioned that in the email. So I just asked the adult child community to put our collective energy out there and let's manifest this shit, okay? The truth of the matter, my dear shit shows, is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago, and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now, let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com slash podcast. Done, turn ADHD into your strength. So I made the comment in a prior episode that I never considered what I went through as trauma because there was never one single catastrophic event. I was never physically or sexually abused. I was never in a horrible car accident. And I obviously was never a soldier in a war zone. Yes, I knew my childhood had been less than ideal in certain respects, but I sure as hell did not think that any of it qualified as trauma. And I sure as hell did not think that the way I felt and behaved in relationships was a trauma response. I just thought I was fucking pathetic or that these guys truly were that amazing. I mean, weren't they though? Don't try to tell me that you weren't experiencing major FOMO while listening to the Broken Picker episode. All those gems you missed out on dating. But in all seriousness, reading Tian's book, The ACUA Trauma Syndrome, was the biggest fucking sigh of relief because I realized I wasn't pathetic and that these guys weren't so amazing, shocking, and that in fact I was suffering from a form of PTSD, complex PTSD. In my opinion, one of the most powerful things that Tian said last week was when she talked about how, in most respects, Adult children produce normally, 
The wounds of the past, the trauma, for the most part, lay dormant, and we go about our lives normally. But then, just like a soldier hits a deck when they hear a car backfiring, we are triggered by whatever our symbolic car backfiring is, and we spin out. So the question that I pose to you all, the question that I think is crucial for an adult child to answer and dissect is, what is your car backfiring? For me, and I think for a lot of adult children, my car backfiring is abandonment or even the slightest threat of abandonment, whether that threat be real or unfounded. You know, for the most part, this fear of abandonment lay dormant inside of me. But as soon as I would enter a relationship, this fear would begin to peek its head out and go on duty, on guard for any potential threats of abandonment. I would be okay as long as I was getting constant reassurance from the guy that I was not being abandoned. But then, at the slightest threat, as simple as a guy not texting me back for a few hours, this fear of abandonment would catapult out of my subconscious at the speed of light and hijack my mind, body, and soul. I would go into this intense, miserable state of anxiety and hypervigilance like a fucking meth addict. And if eventually he did text me back, I would return to a stable, insane condition within a matter of seconds. But... If the threat of abandonment turned out to be real, I wanted to fucking die, and I felt like my life was over. And this is what I meant when I said in the Broken Picker episode that I essentially lived in a trauma response whenever I was in a relationship. The hypervigilance, the feeling like I was going to die if I didn't have that person in my life, that is what we call an emotional flashback which is one of the most notable symptoms of complex PTSD. Emotional flashbacks are sudden and often prolonged regressions to the overwhelming feeling states of being an abused or abandoned child. And these feeling states can include overwhelming fear, shame, rage, depression, or it can also be the unnecessary triggering of our flight-and-flight instinct. But the most insidious aspect of emotional flashbacks is that there is no visual component, which means we don't have a fucking clue what's going on. We get all flooded with these intense emotions and thoughts, and we don't know what's going on. And that was me up until three years ago. I didn't have a fucking clue what was going on. I didn't even realize that I was terrified of abandonment. I really didn't even think I had abandonment issues, or if I did, I thought that they were inconsequential. The only real abandonment that I could point to in my past was when my dad would go out of town for work and leave me at home alone with my alcoholic mother. But even this I viewed as inconsequential because, by the grace of God, nothing horrible ever happened while he was away. But through the healing work I've done with my therapist over the past several years— I now clearly see how abandonment was a major player throughout my entire adolescence. My mother's alcoholism was a form of abandonment. 
my dad using me as his emotional support and confidant was a form of abandonment. Me being scapegoated and sent to a therapist for my separation anxiety while my parents failed to tell a therapist what was actually going on in our home, that was abandonment. Becoming the friendless school slut overnight in the seventh grade, that was abandonment. Getting sent to inpatient rehab in the eighth grade, boarding school in the 10th grade, even though I think my parents made the right decision there, that was abandonment. And then my own alcoholism and addiction and all that that encompassed, that was a form of self-abandonment. All of those experiences, every single one of them were abandonment. But more importantly, these were all instances of trauma, trauma that impacted how my brain functioned, how I viewed myself, how I viewed the world, trauma that caused me to act and feel crazy and to experience excruciating amounts of pain whenever I was in a relationship. And there was no hope for me. There was no hope for change until I recognized and acknowledged that I had endured repetitive and continual trauma throughout my entire upbringing. You know, one of my intentions in creating this podcast was to smash this belief that there is some sort of hierarchy when it comes to dysfunctional families, when it comes to trauma, to smash this belief that certain forms of abuse are more damaging than others. I think for a lot of people, it can be hard to view certain subtle forms of abuse or neglect as trauma, especially if our parents were loving and showed up for us in more ways than not. We invalidate and minimize our experiences because we were never hit or because our parents never told us that we were a piece of shit. But in my opinion, and frankly, what a lot of research has shown is that these subtle forms of abuse, that psychological forms of abuse and neglect can be just as damaging as physical or sexual abuse. And I want to emphasize that None of this is said to invalidate or minimize the experiences of those who have been subjected to some really horrendous forms of abuse, my upcoming guest included. The reason I say it is for anyone out there who may be in the shoes that I once was, oblivious to the fact that the reoccurring issues you encounter in life is actually the result of of unresolved childhood pain, of unresolved childhood trauma. But here is the good news, y'all. Healing and recovery is possible. Change is possible. And I think that there are many paths and tools to healing. As I've shared before, the most beneficial tool for me has been working with an amazing therapist who knows this shit like the back of her hand. For the first year and a half, I saw her twice a week because I truly felt like my life depended upon it. And I still see her once a week. Again, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but this shit takes time. It's not easy. It's painful at times, but it's so fucking worth it. And I promise that you are strong enough to do the work. So I wanted to close with reading a passage from the ACOA trauma syndrome because I think Tian does a beautiful job of illustrating what the process of change looks like for an adult child. Change is not only intellectual. When it comes to trauma, we need to create a new body to live in. We need to learn to take good care of it so that it stays healthy and emotionally fit. 
we need to resolve the kind of hidden pain that locks us into triggered knee-jerk reactions that, once set into motion, have a life of their own. Change comes when we have sat in the pain long enough and fully enough so that we can feel it, can open our mouths and talk about it, see it for what it is, reorder and understand it, and then walk out of it. This does not mean that we won't feel bad, hurt, angry, or triggered about our past again. It just means that if and when we are triggered, we won't catapult into an unconscious place from which we can only act out, shut down, or dive straight into self-medicating behaviors. Eventually, our triggered place will feel somehow less compelling, less like all of us, less like we want to give it so much of our attention. Change occurs when we have a choice about whether or not we care to direct our attention toward or away what is being triggered, when our triggers no longer run us, and when we're able to manage the feelings that they bring up with our own skills, when our spontaneous reaction to a situation that used to baffle us changes. Change also comes when we learn to do something different, to make choices in our thinking and daily routines that interrupt a downward spiral and create an upward one. We heal one feeling at a time, one thought at a time. As each feeling arises, we unpack it and we look at the thinking, meaning-making, and behavior it gives rise to. We give the feelings air, voice, and freedom of expression. We make new, mature sense of them with our adult mind. We learn from them, and we grow up on the inside. Emotional maturity, rather than an act of will, is, in this sense, a natural outgrowth of deep work, an awakening into another point of view and a letting go of the past in order to live more fully in the present. Wow, that literally gives me a visceral reaction when I read it. She is fucking amazing. So now for my interview with Shannon and trigger warning, big trigger warning. Her story includes childhood sexual abuse. It is a heavy story, but it is a story that needs to be heard as it is a beautiful message of hope and healing. She is truly a strong and beautiful woman inside and out. And I think you're going to get a lot out of this. All right. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce one badass bitch, Shannon, the founder, I don't know what we want to call you, the, the head of survivingchildhoodtrauma.com. She also has an amazing Instagram page where she's just constantly putting out content and providing a space for childhood trauma survivors to talk and to realize that they're not alone. And I'm super excited for y'all to get to, to hear her and meet her. So hi, Shannon. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me on your show. So my podcast, my very first episode, I talk about um, how I came to terms with the true impact that my upbringing had on me. And I know that you sort of had a similar experience a few years ago where things kind of bubbled to the surface, which forced you to 
to really start looking at this stuff. So I thought that we could kind of start there and and then go backwards. Sure. Yeah, it was. um, So my, my active healing journey started four years ago, a little over January of 2017. Um, It was a very, uh, there was a a very specific moment. Um, So to set just a little bit of a a backdrop, I've uh, been with my husband for 12 years. We've been married. We just celebrated our fifth year. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Um, it was right after that should be your new surviving marriage.com. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm telling you survive marriage after trauma. That's a whole show in and of itself. Um, so my husband now he's, he's my second husband. I've had two major relationships in my life prior to him. Uh, he is nothing like my two previous relationships. And, um, through the course of our first seven years together before we got married, our communication um, was good. We never really fought. You know, we, we had these moments where maybe we'd get a little sharp with each other, a little short, a little heated, um, but we never really had fights. So we're about a year into our marriage. Um, we actually are, we had a, we had a child right before we got married. So I have a six-year-old. So we have this little one-year-old, we're newly married um, things in our marriage are starting to kind of get cold in some areas and communication is not so great. Um, all of a sudden one day I see my husband, he doesn't have his wedding ring on. And I asked him what that was about. And it's, that was the, the moment that marked like this three day fight, this, like the most intense, we weren't talking, you know, I thought he was going to leave and move up to his mom's. You know, it was probably the most um, physically triggered I've ever been at that point because I, I spent a lot of years in dissociation, which I'll get into. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I pulled back from my husband. I wasn't speaking to him. I wasn't touching him. I wasn't kissing him goodbye. Like everything in our relationship just shifted so quickly. Um, and now, of course, looking back, I can see that that's because I mean, I had such serious abandonment, like wounds triggered in that moment. Um, but so it was like day two of this crazy fight that we were having where I wasn't talking to him. And I, I just suddenly had this like moment, like this thought, and it was like, literally in my head, I'm going, there's no way it's that there's, it can't be that. Is it really that, you know, cause all my life I knew I had a bad childhood. I knew my, I knew I, it sucked. Um, but I never thought of it as like, this traumatizing, abusive, horrific, um, you know, full of tragedy and grief childhood. Um, you know, it's like, I forgot, but I never forgot. So I started Googling, um, effects of sexual childhood, sexual abuse and adulthood. And it was, it was really shocking. Like I was literally reading like, you know, like my autobiography spread out over all these articles and lists of top 10 lists and top five that. And, um, I don't know. I don't know how to explain how that hit me. I sent my husband a couple articles. Um, I told him I still wasn't ready to talk about it, but I said, please read this stuff. I want to say that he knew, I, I feel like I probably told him Yeah, that was going to be my question. Was, was he aware? I, I feel like he was. Cause again, like I, I never didn't remember my childhood. I had a very script, like a, a perfected script that I could go over that would just give all the major, you know, boom, you know, the heavy hitting moments to drop someone's jaw. And, and then I was through it. 
So I sent him all this stuff. Um, I had, I had finished my social work schooling at that point. So I was pretty familiar with, um, my city and the resources available and all the homework assignments. So, um, I knew there was an agency here in town that specialized in helping women and children and, and men, but it's, it originally started as women and children, uh, with domestic and sexual assault violence, you know, things like that. So I called up, um, I went on their website, there was this group listed, turns out the group didn't exist, but, um, I ended up getting in, in with the director of the sexual assault, um, uh, program. And it was the most amazing thing. Cause I didn't need insurance. I didn't need money. Mm-hmm. She didn't watch a clock cause she was, um, in a master's program, getting supervised by a local psychologist. So she was like willing to sit with me for a couple of hours a week. Um, I got in touch with her. I made an appointment and that was like, and that was where it started. Um, and in the first three or four months, I was completely knocked off my, I went from, I was 37 when this happened. I went from this functioning super workaholic, totally driven and ambitious. My house was in order, you know, had, could keep things up on a, on a to-do list, you know, functioning adults. Um, and then I just, yeah, it knocked the, knocked my feet right out from under me. You know, it was like struggle to shower. It was a struggle to get to work. It was like, um, I, I couldn't stop crying. Everything reminded me, you know, of everything. It was, um, they call it crisis mode, right? It's like that, that first initial emergency kind of crisis mode. It took about four or five months for me to get through that. Um, but yeah, that's where it started. (laughs) It was, it it felt very swift. I I spent probably the first 18 months of therapy trying to figure out what that one thing was that triggered it all. But I I do believe now it was just a series of events along with time and just self-awareness and maturity and experience, et cetera. It was just inevitable, right? Can't run from your stuff. Yeah. And just a gift from the universe. I had, I had a very similar experience too, where the tiniest bit of space was created in my head where I could see that the way that I was feeling right now, there was no way that that was directly correlated to what the the current situation that it had to be something deeper. And then also very similar to you. So like one of the adult, uh, the laundry list traits is that we have stuffed our feelings from our traumatic childhoods because it just hurts so much. And for me, and it sounds like very similar to you when you said you had this rehearsed narrative, I always knew that my childhood was less than ideal I always remembered what happened, but I realized that when I would tell other people about it, it was like I was a news reporter, like yes, standing, in front of, yeah, standing in front of a burning house, but actually it's my house, but like I'm mm-hmm. actually like I'm totally disconnected from the house. Yeah. And so I never considered that I had stuffed my feelings because I thought that stuffing feelings meant that you couldn't talk about things, but it's two different things. See, and I, for me, just avoiding them was just a a way of handling it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, no, I, I definitely, my script was, what was I going to say? I lost my train of thought there for a minute. If I remember it, I'll come back. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, that was kind of like a big revelation for me was like, I thought that because I could talk about it, it doesn't, it meant that I wasn't that impacted by it. Go ahead. Right. No, I was say, I actually had this almost like, uh, I almost enjoyed the shocked looks that people would give as I just ticked off each part of, you know, my childhood. It was almost like, yeah, see, I survived that. <laughs> Here I am telling you the story. Um, yeah, now, now, now my story chokes me up all the time. I have to like breeze through it. 
Well, I think that's part of it too, right? It's like that we get addicted to like the excitement aspect of it. Mm. I think, yeah, that's probably a defense mechanism as well. So let's let's go there. Tell me your story. Yeah. So let me see how I can... I'm, I'm slowly learning how to um, surmise my story without it taking an hour. Um, so... I was, I always tell people, sadly, I was born through tragedy and my mother died 18 days after I was born. Uh, and my dad coming from the household that he came from did not have any type of, my dad had his own issues, um, that, you know, his own mental health, his own inability to create stability, um, or security for me. So that definitely spilled into relationships for him. You have a, did siblings? I do have a half sister. Um, she actually lives very close to me here in Wisconsin. She's a couple years younger than I am. We're actually very close now. So she actually plays into my story a little bit later. So, um, yeah, so I was born, I was born in California. My mom died when I was born. My dad was in the military. Um, there must've been some issues between my dad and my mom's parents and like family. Um, I know that they wanted him to continue in the military and they would help keep me, um, but he, for whatever reason, didn't want that to happen. So he took an honorable discharge and he packed me up and he moved me to Washington state where his parents lived and where his siblings were. So I grew up in Washington state. Um, and for the majority of, well, I grew up, I, I was there until age 14. And the majority of that time in Washington, I was sexually abused by my grandfather, by my dad's dad, you know, through those, I, I've heard stories that in kindergarten, I, I spoke for the first time about the abuse. So I don't actually remember that, but I was told by my dad's sister, by my aunt that, you know, that came up in conversation with her mom, um, that my dad and my grandma went to the school and told them, you know, I was a storyteller not to, you know, not to be worried. Nothing like that was happening. So it was around age five that my abuse started, um, at least the sexual abuse, and and it ended at age twelve. You have a memory of the first time that it happened? No, I, I actually have almost no memory of the abuse. I have um, some very specific memories. I think of times that the, the things that we were doing was like moved up a level. So like I remember the first time I think that we tried different things. Um, but in general, my memories all kind of blend together. I know that there was just a place in the woods after dinner. Most nights we would walk back there. You know, I remember a few times in the house, a few times in the barn. I remember the pornography that he used to um, show to me. Um, I remember washing up before and after, like it was this whole ritual, but as far as like detailed memories of all the different times and different, you know, things, thankfully I only remember a couple. (laughs) So and what was your relationship like with him? Like, like the rest of the day, like, would you spend time with him? Oh, I, I loved, I was like the special granddaughter. My grandfather bought me my own lawnmower. So they had five acres of land. I loved to mow the lawn. He bought me my own lawnmower. I was the oldest cousin of, you know, of all my, my dad's siblings, kids. So they would come over to my grandparents' house and he would like hook up the tra- little tow trailer, put some hay bales in it. And I would tow my cousins around, you know, climbing trees, picking fruit off the, you know, trees in the orchard. I mean, I, to, I literally had, I mean, other than the poverty, obviously I had all the silent abuses, you know, the things that, that nobody sees. And we lived in section eight housing. 
My dad was, you know, very unstable. There wasn't regular meals. There was no emotional support or nurture. My dad, in fact, protected his dad, enabled his dad, made me available, told, you know, told his dad when I was talking. So if I said to my dad, Hey, grandpa's abusing me. My dad would go to his dad and say, Hey, Shannon's talking. And then I would get punished. It was a very unsafe um, environment. My dad did have a few different girlfriends. He got married a couple times. Um, we, you know, we, we were stable the early years, as far as we lived in the same apartment at about, I think I was 12 when my dad, he was unemployed. We lived on welfare. I remember food stamps when they were these little monopoly monies in a tear out book, you know, so that, that was, that was like how I grew up. We spent a lot of time at my grandparents because they fed us, you know? And so I just always remember being there and being available. What was your relationship like with your grandmother? I didn't really have one. When I really think about her, um, she was very cold and callous, cruel. A couple of the memories that I have of her being like mean to me. I was young. I wanted to play and they would try and get me to work, right? We'd be at their house and they'd be like, you need to go in the back and pick up the wood and put it in the burn pile so that your, your grandpa can mow. And really, I just want to go and like climb trees or something. Um, so I used to get in trouble a lot. And she was, she was always just a very, not a, not a warm grandma. And I, and I truly believe that's because she knew. I think that she knew all along what was happening. And let me tell you why. So this is where the plot thickens. The reason that I believe she knew fully is because my aunt, my dad's sister, so her daughter, was also abused by my grandfather. So he molested his own daughter all of her life. She grew up, moved out, and then he moved on to me. When did you find that? Because I've heard you share that before in a different interview. Do you know when you, you found that information out? Yeah. So I found that out during the trial. So... um so yeah, so we'll get to that point. So I I had this, you know, we moved to Washington age two. The sexual abuse started approximately around age five. I lived most of my life getting in a lot of trouble. Like I said, being very emotionally neglected and abused by my father. I, at, at 12, I remember having a conversation with somebody in school. I'm not sure if it was a teacher or teacher's aide or a student, um, but I did ask someone if what my grandfather and I did was okay. And I was told no. Um, whoever I spoke to, that was as far as it went. So nobody ever did anything or tried to find out further why a seventh grader was asking about this kind of stuff. But I actually said to my grandfather myself, I don't want to do this anymore. Somebody at school told me this was wrong. You know, can we stop? Um, and my grandfather like literally set me free. He, he stopped molesting me. I think at his age, he just didn't have any fight left in him. Maybe he was scared because I was a talker. I spoke up so much as a child. He probably was just, you know, I, I was, I think I was a gamble. So how did your relationship shift with him? Like right after that happened? You know, I don't remember. I really don't. Um, I, I actually don't have a lot of, of memory interacting with him. I just remember feeling like, you know, I would always get candy. If I went to the store, like if I went to the hardware store, the local feed store with him, I would get candy. You know, I like if he bought me the lawnmower. Um, I always felt like I got special treatment, but as far as actual memories of like snuggling up on the sofa or anything like that, I really don't have them. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how our relationship changed after that. It was so my, you know, I may not have actually seen him as much. Um, cause around that age, my dad got a job for the first time 
We actually moved out of the subsidized housing in this little town that we lived in to a neighboring bigger city. To Van- We moved to Vancouver, Washington, um, into some apartments there. And I wonder if, you know, maybe I just didn't see him as much because we live like 30 minutes away. We probably didn't drive there as much. Um, but again, I have such, I have such spotty memory. I, I really, it's just, <laughs> it's so bad. And you, you obviously went to school. Did you have friends? Did you have any like extracurricular activities? So, um, I have some memories of school again, like this is probably the hardest thing about my trauma and how I coped with it as a kid. Um, I have, I have like, I have so many black spots. Like I, I kind of remember my school. I sort of remember my teachers. I did have a couple of friends. Like I remember this one girl that I spent the night at her house and I was like kind of coveted her pearl necklaces. I always thought she had like really nice clothes. Um, but I struggled in school too. Um, I was literally the kid that was like, well, since you guys all hate me and think that I'm a piece of shit anyways, I'm going to act like it and I'm going to be rebellious and I'm going to get in trouble and I'm going to talk back. And, you know, and I wasn't a bad kid. Like I wasn't vandalizing or getting into fights. Really, I've always just been a really, I've had a sharp tongue my whole life. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, so I, I don't, I don't really have, like, I have memories of school, but, but they're just nothing super specific, nothing super amazing, um, nothing really horrible. I just, it it really, sadly, a lot of the good memories, the everyday memories, they all just kind of got swept away in the suppression of everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I, unfortunately I spent so many years ensuring that that door was shut in my brain that I think also time Mm -hmm. has not been on my side as far as memory goes. Right. So I'm 41 years old. I've got you know, 30 years between me and a lot of this abuse, um, with a lot of intentional don't remember, you know, try not to remember. So, so yeah, my, my memories, I, I've, I think I've, I've, um, over time have some, most of them are gone. I don't, I don't think, I mean, maybe EMDR and, and hypnotherapy could eventually jog some of it. EMDR does sometimes, but, um, part of my journey is kind of accepting that I've got a lot of black holes in my memory that I might not ever get back. So I I told my grandpa at 12 that I didn't want to do that stuff anymore. Um, around that time, my dad got a job, we moved. Um, and that's when the major instability started. Um, he had met this woman. Um, Oh, I forgot to mention the part I totally skipped over. I was going to tell you about my sister and how she kind of pops in and the instability of my father's relationships. So he met my sister's mom right after my mom died. They're, my sister and I are only a couple of years apart. They got married and I think, excuse me, and I think divorced before she was even born, before my sister was even born. When I was 10 and my sister was seven, they reconnected and they got married again. And my, my sister and her mom moved in maybe six months to a year lasted before they divorced again. Um, and that was the first time I ever met my sister. I was 10 years old. Um, to that point in my life, I always said I was an only child. So, um, but then she moved away and I forgot about her again. So, um, it, we moved, my dad got the job. We moved, um, he met this other woman. He, it was, it was so weird. He married this other woman twice. She had a stepson, but they never lived together or she had a son, but they never lived together. So we're living in this one place. My dad loses a job. We get kicked out. Now we've, we've moved in with her. She lives in like this neighboring apartment complex. So we moved in with her. I'm like, I think I was maybe 13, seventh, eighth grade is when this is all taking place. Um, 
her apartment's too small. So they get plywood from the local hardware store and they create this like makeshift room for me in the like dining room area of this apartment, which literally just fit my bed. So I had no privacy. That was like where I live. That's like what everybody does here in San Francisco because it's so, everything's so expensive that people just make a bedroom out of the living room. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, I just, I hadn't ever experienced that before. So, um, and her, and her son would like stay up all night and like sleep during the day. And she never, I don't, it was just a really, really dysfunctional and unhealthy relationship. She didn't like me. I don't know why, but she, I remember a lot of times my dad would like pull me aside to talk to me about how Jerry had said I bumped into her too hard in the hallway or, you know, and I don't know, maybe I was, maybe I was a snotty kid with this woman that was taking my dad away. I don't know. I don't remember. Um, but whatever I was doing, it was never, you know, it was never like this ill-intentioned maliciousness towards this woman. It was literally this wounded child just at, you know, screaming for attention. So they ended up splitting up. She, uh, again, <laughs> she moves out. We get to stay till the end of the month and we're going to be homeless. So my aunt, my dad's sister takes us in um, with her and her three kids. Her husband, my uncle had just died recently of cancer. It was just lots of craziness in my childhood. <laughs> so we, we move in with her. I don't know, remember how long we stayed with her. My dad was sleeping on the couch. I was on my mattress in her like formal living room. Um, but that's when I, when I made a choice, I was, I had just turned 14 that maybe I could go stay with my mom's parents who lived in California, my grandparents, my good grandparents until my dad got back on his feet. And then I'd come back to live with him. So with my aunt's help, I, um, called my grandparents. I asked, they came back and said, we want custody. You come live with us. You're, you're coming until you're 18. Um, so I made that choice and I told my dad, I wanted to move and I wanted, you know, move in with my grandparents and I wanted him to give custody over. It was one of the most horrible conversations. My dad told me he was going to kill himself. And I had to tell him that that was his choice. Um, he called me a meal ticket, told me I couldn't leave because he wouldn't get welfare stuff anymore. Um, I ended up leaving at 14. My dad and I became estranged shortly thereafter. We had this, he, I tried to call him to talk to him. He hated my grandparents. He called me a gold digger, told my grandpa, like called my grandpa a bunch of really bad names, hung up. I think he hung up on me. I can't remember. And that was the last time I spoke to him until I was like 21 years old. So I was 14 when that happened. Um, at some point in the first six, eight months of living with my grandparents in California, I disclosed to my grandma. I don't know why. I'm, we're talking two and a half years, roughly, since the abuse had happened. Um, but my grandma was the first one to do anything about it. She immediately got me into counseling. Mandated reporting happened. You know, the next thing I knew, I was swept up in a court case. And over the course of the next year, my grandfather was arrested. Um, my, my cousins were all pulled in for questioning that was when communication started happening between me and my aunt. And I found out she was also a victim. Um, so she became a character witness, at the trial. So she told you, she told you that it had happened to her. So she told her daughter who told me <laughs> that was how it happened. Um, but then, yeah, after all of that, we talked about it. Um, my dad, however, was a witness for the defense. So he gave testimony to the defense, calling me a liar, telling me I was making it up, that I was confused. Um, I found that out actually. I think it was like when I went into the trial, that was pretty shattering. 
so the trial started, the trial happened uh, a week before my 15th, my 16th birthday. I was 15 years old. And were you going to, were you going to court every day? Were you sitting in the room every day or no? So the, the first, the first day of court, like, so the, the trial happened in Washington state and I was living in California. So we did a lot of flying up for different aspects that we had to be there in person. So yeah, we came up for the uh, actual trial. So the first day was opening statements. I had done a recorded conversation with my grandfather. The laws about recording third parties were different between Washington and California. So the first day of trial, I was called to the stand to testify to the, the validity of that cassette tape of that recording. So I was in the courtroom for that. Otherwise, I was in a side room. So I was in the courtroom for that. I had my court-appointed advocate was in there. Um, and your grandfather was obviously in the in the room as well. Yeah, I, I was told to point him out. So I was asked to point out if my abuser was in the room. So I did. I was scheduled to give testimony the next morning. Uh, but the next morning, my grandfather shot himself. So the trial ended and I flew home and my family stopped talking to me. And then I turned 16 a week later, or five days later. And uh, within 10 weeks, I was rebelling so bad that my grandparents couldn't handle me. Um, in, that per- in, the, you know, in that period of time, I had reconnected with my sister. And the next thing I knew, I was on a train or a plane from California to Chicago to go live with my sister and her mom. And my guardianship was being transferred again. What did rebelling look like? Skipping class, smoking a lot of pot, drinking, talking back. Mm-hmm. Like literally, I, I was going to high school in California in the 90s. Like speed was like so readily available, right? I didn't touch any of that stuff. I was like, in fact, I didn't even drink a lot. I, I've like, literally, I was like, a, I've, I think I was destined to be a pothead as a child, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, but no, like I, I smoked a lot of pot as a kid. Um, I didn't sneak out. I didn't get into fights. I mean, I got into a couple fights, but I, I swear I never, like, I never looked for the fights. I just never backed down. Is alcoholism an addiction? Was that present at all in your family growing up? No. Actually, so it's really interesting. Um, on the ACEs mm-hmm. test, mm-hmm. Um, all of my adverse childhood experiences had to do with abuse. The only real dis- like environmental dysfunction that I had was a father that was you know completely um, unavailable due to his own issues and who he was as a person. Um, there was no violence in my home because he was never married. There was he wasn't a smoker, or a drinker. Um, if he did do drugs, I never, like if he was doing any type of, you know, cocaine or anything like that, like I never noticed, I never saw it. My family looked so normal, (laughs) you know, from the outside, we're just a poor family. My environmental issues were not having a mom, not having regular meals, you know, dirty clothes, not, not the, not the greatest hygiene because none of that was disciplined into me or, you know, structured in my household. So that was, that was what my rebelling looked like. However, there was huge generational gaps, I think, between myself and my grandparents. You know, I'm 16 years old. They're both in their 60s. Um, so it was really hard for them. And there was not a lot of... of nobody was trauma-informed in 1995. You know what I mean? Like the counselor that I was seeing was, was not um, skilled to, to treat the trauma that I had was going, you know, and for the trauma to be compounded, right? Like I'm in the midst of processing childhood sexual abuse and neglect. I'm going through a trial and then my grandfather commits suicide. Like I blamed myself for that. My whole family stopped talking to me. How, 
how, you know, my, my brain didn't know how to, to cope with that. Like I wrote in my diary, the most obligatory posts, like literally I'm saying, I guess I should write about this as I explain what happened that day in court. Well, and also too, the information about childhood trauma on the brain, like the MRI studies, like none of that mm-hmm. information was available at mm-hmm. that time. I mean, they didn't have that. Yeah. I mean, EMDR was still in its early stages and it wasn't really recognized or appreciated by the mental health industry. It, it was still, you know, in the, in the early days of real, you know, finding that it was really helping patients with PTSD. So, so yeah, I didn't have a lot of trauma informed care and my grandparents didn't have any resources or support as the guardians of a child that was so traumatized. So, so yeah, so I got shipped off again. At least that's what it felt like. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. my sister's mom is also very abusive. She's one of the, um, bless her heart for all the shit she's been through. Like I get it, but as a survivor myself and as a mother who's made the choice to break those cycles, to heal myself, to not do those things to my children. Um, I just am, she's just the most narcissistic, emotionally abusive woman, uh, at least in my life currently. So I spent 18 months with her. Um, a couple times she tried to sign me over to the state. You know, she was just really, just really aggressively abusive. She really reaffirmed that I was, you know, not wanted anywhere, not, you know, easily lovable. Um, at 17, she kicked me out and, uh, I met my, well, I, I already knew my ex-husband. So my first major relationship, I, she kicked me out at 17 shortly before I was 19. I had my first, uh, my first child, my ex-husband and I were married by that point lasted like three years, you know, by 21, I, um, was separated from him and raising my two-year-old on my own. Um, and I, so I, I always tell people I've lived three lives at this point, which is, um, which means makes a lot of sense considering with Scorpio and Scorpios are about transformation. So <laughs> to go into that little, little bit there for a minute, but, um, you know, so I had this like childhood of abuse and these teenage years of abuse. And then I hit 21 and I left my ex-husband and I had my child and I, that was like him, him and like the cheating and that betrayal and that divorce was like that final, I just shut this door. And that's when my years of dissociation stopped. So I just, I shut the door. My childhood was over <clears throat> moving on. I got a good job. I met a new boyfriend who was like, I think more socially acceptable. Not that my ex-husband wasn't, he was, you know, but you know, it was, I, I went in a different direction. I became more kind of opinionated and kind of snotty and judgy. And if I can do it, so can you pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, very little empathy for anybody that had any struggle as I completely just dissociated. Um, my emotional vocabulary and understanding was so shallow and immature, you know, my, ability to cope with anything major was virtually non-existent. It was, for me, it was suppression, right? Avoid it all. Um, very all or nothing. I went through an eight-year relationship of, of like, <laughs> it was another very narcissistic, narcissistic guy, very controlling. You know, I was always trying so hard to get that approval to finally take a relationship to the next step. Um, I finally got my shit together on that one. Took, took a while. Um, but yeah, I, I left that relationship at 29 shortly after I met my husband, my marriage after trauma has been, um, 
quite an adventure. The first seven years of it, I was a dissociated woman, you know, with untreated trauma and mental health. And the last four years, I have been an active trauma survivor, recovering and actively healing. Um, so it's changed the landscape of my marriage in many, many ways. So far, all of them have turned out for the best, but <laughs> not for lack of struggle and challenge. Um, but, you know, that's my story. And that's what really brings me to here. I have a, a lot of questions. <laughs> so first, and then hopefully you don't take offense to this, but so you you met your husband seven years before, obviously, before you started to seek treatment, correct? Mm-hmm. So at that point in time, obviously you were still very sick. I mean, I guess, you know, we kind of have broken pickers or whatever. I'm just like wondering how has that changed? You know what I mean? Like, cause you were attracted to him at this point in time where you're very disassociated, disconnected. How has that shifted your healing um, journey and everything? How has that shifted your relationship with him, your perception of him? So, um, so when I first met my husband, I actually, my exact words to a friend, oh gosh, I, if he ever hears this, I think he may have heard this on other stories. Um, but my, my first reaction to a friend was that um, he would be fun to play with, but was not, he wasn't really my type um, because he looked and acted and behaved and came from this like circuit that was so opposite of everything I'd ever dated. Um, he wasn't this big, huge macho man. He was more silent, you know, quiet guy with the really nice smile. He's like literally the like nice guy finishes last. So when I, when I met him, we met online, when I met him in person, I, I definitely did not think it was going to go anywhere. He, I, I sometimes blame him um, jokingly for, for the healing, for this healing and what everything that's happened and the changes in our marriage, because he really is so different from any relationship I've ever had. And childhood abuse is a relational wound. And so we heal when we're in safe relationships. So over the course of those seven years, when I was not being treated or recognized as a trauma survivor, I was still healing in little ways without realizing it because my husband was so accepting of who I was and so encouraging of who I wanted to be. And that is why I think eventually my walls crumbled because I got to a point where I I was completely encouraged to be who I wanted to be. And I didn't have a clue who I was, right? Life was calm. It was um, secure. I was loved. I had a family. Um, Nothing was around to stress me out. And my nervous system didn't know what the hell to do with that. So it was like, hey, let's just go for a swim in our trauma, right? So, um, So when that happened, you know, one of the biggest changes... One of the biggest changes was um, our sex life. I found, which has been really hard for him to understand, was that sex was easier when I was dissociated. And the more connected I became to myself and my body, the the more I struggled to with um, inhibitions and embarrassment and, you know, and body memories, right? You know, he'd go to touch me and my body would tense up and pull away before my brain even registered. No, Shannon, that's your husband, safe touch. So in the beginning, it was really hard for him. I think um, like many survivors, we are problem solvers. So it was like, okay, I've got this childhood to deal with. Go to counseling, heal it, get past it, move on, right? Um, So I think we all in my household had a misconception that six, eight, 
months from now, things should be fine. When in actuality, when it comes to healing childhood trauma, six, eight months, you're actually in the thick of it, right? You are just starting to get your understanding of, of what your mental health you know, struggles mean for you in your life. So my husband's a fixer. He couldn't fix it caused a lot of problems. He couldn't understand. He still doesn't understand trauma brain, but he now understands that he doesn't understand. In the early days, he said a couple things that were really detrimental to our relationship. And um, he became a very unsafe person. And I started to filter my healing at home. I started to kind of withhold and really just do it in counseling. Um, or with a safe friend. And this is all prior to having the survivor community and the connections that I do now, which has become a, a pivotal tool for me in my healing. Um, and it took us a couple years. In fact, it was the pandemic and just the shift in everything. He had his own personal shift where he suddenly recognized his own journey um, as the partner of a trauma survivor. But it wasn't until I saw him realizing and making those shifts, like it wasn't anything that I could have said to make him like there was there wasn't something anything he could have said to make him un, like not an unsafe person because of some of those early days like there was this one this one kind of back and forth we were having where he literally said to me are you sure you don't need to go somewhere and be like committed for a while and you know my brain interpreted that as i'm too much you don't want to deal with me you just want to get me out of the house so um the way that it's changed our, our relationship though, as we've moved through that is we have such an unbelievable community, uh, like ability to communicate. Now he recognizes my triggers and doesn't take them personally. Most of the time, <laughs> if we do have a bad, a, a bad day where we can normally come back from it pretty quick. Um, he, he's, he understands that, you know, full body exhaustion and lethargy is part of complex trauma. So I don't feel guilty if I don't get to the dishes or I don't get to the laundry. Uh, in fact, my husband does sometimes I think more dishes and laundry than I do, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I, I got, I got really lucky. I got really lucky. I found a good partner. So, and I, I owe him a lot because I don't think that I could heal the way I'm healing if he weren't a safe partner. You know what I mean? Like, cause we can't heal in environments that are abusive or um, dangerous or insecure or unsafe. So, yeah. So you've talked about like EMDR a little bit. I'm yeah. just wondering, could you talk about all the different types of methods of healing that you've used? What has been sure. most beneficial to you? And then also if there's, if there was like a real pivotal transformation moment, if you want to share on that. Yeah. So I, um, I've been pretty basic up until recently with all my, my ways of coping and, and treating my trauma. Um, I saw the counselor at the agency for 18 months every week. Um, a couple months in, she recommended me to my EMDR counselor, who I still see. So for about 18 months, I was seeing two counselors a week. I haven't brought up EMDR yet on the podcast. If you can briefly explain yeah. what it is. Yeah. So EMDR therapy, it's eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Um, it's based off the concept of REM sleep. So when we sleep, we process our day's events, we move our emotions and our memories through our limbic system and our brain for proper processing, you know, and storage. As children who are abused with all of the adrenaline and the cortisol and the anxiety and the stress, we don't sleep as well. Our traumas get stored in that limbic system, which is why we feel everything so intensely. So what EMDR therapy, what it does is it 
mimics a wakeful um, REM sleep. So for example, um, and, and this is done in three different ways. Either a counselor will literally put their finger in front of your eyes and you'll follow their finger back and forth, bilateral stimulation. Yep. You'll have vibrating paddles in each hand where, and I prefer those because I have to have my eyes closed or I can't mentally focus on anything. And the general gist is you have a, a, a you know, an intense experience. Um, something happens at work, you come in, you talk about it with your counselor, you kind of develop an image in your mind or some sort of a word or something that encompasses what you're feeling. You rate your irritation on a scale of zero to 10. Um, then you close your eyes for me with the paddles. You focus on that thought. The vibrating begins and the stimulation begins. And it's supposed to basically get you know, to pull those memories and those thoughts and that stuff and just like process it through the brain. And I know for me, like I'll have little cameos run where I'll start focused on one thing. And then I literally jump flash memory to flash memory to flash memory through my whole like life, you know, in the period of 15 or 20 seconds, or my brain will just shut down completely, go completely blank. I lose everything. I'm hyper-focused on the vibrating paddles. But even when that would happen, I would find that in the days to come, I would dream or, you know, some things would come up eventually. Um, so it really helped. I really enjoyed it. I haven't done EMDR for a while because my therapy is virtual, but I really, I really, I'm a huge proponent of that, that technique. It's just because our, our, it, because our injuries and our thought, like our part of our injury is the thought process. It is the physiological changes to our brain that, that different filtering system that we have, um, that inability to move past things that are kind of stuck and unprocessed. And you know, talk therapy helps a lot. I do a lot of CBT therapy, goal-oriented therapy. I monitor my PTSD symptoms weekly through the PCL5 screener, which is just a series of questions that um, track your avoidance, your dissociation, emotional responses, etc. I journal like crazy. I write like crazy. Um, I am going to be starting Reiki at the end of May. So I'm really excited about that. Um, I've heard really wonderful things about that. And I'm, I'm, and I, I'm learning that healing really is a, is a, a multitude of different techniques and modalities and disciplines that we kind of smash together into a personalized cocktail of what works best for us. Pivotal moment for me though, biggest level up in my healing, like monumental for me at this point was the survivor community and the connection with survivor friends. You know, when, when I started to talk to other survivors, when I met one of my closest survivor friends now, Tanner, her and I talk every week or so having a friendship that is literally built on the foundational understanding of trauma and trauma responses and trauma healing, knowing that I have someone that I can go to that I don't have to filter that can hold the, you know, discomfort of things that I say and who doesn't judge because they understand without explanation, the trauma brain and, you know, responses or nervous system responses and reactions that has been huge. Having a friend that I can go through all of my insecurities in a relationship. Do you really like me this much? Am I good enough for this friendship? You didn't talk to me for a couple of days. Now I think you're mad at me. Like all of those things that our brains tell us, like I've been able to work through with her. And it's been, it's been huge. Um, hearing other trauma stories and just knowing that, you know, there's so many of us carrying so much pain and struggling so much, just kind of coming together to help hold each other up. 
oh, it's just, that's been some of the biggest, like I've let go of so much shame and embarrassment. Um, I've been able to step into vulnerability and authenticity easier, not always easy, you know, not always, but easier um, since that happened. That's probably been, I mean, next to professional counseling, I always tell survivors, find the survivor community, find the pages that you resonate with, go through the comments, find people that have stories similar to yours, say hello, like push yourself out of that comfort zone, recognize that you're not going to connect with everybody, but that when you make that connection, yeah, survivor friends are priceless. (laughs) They really are. So you obviously experienced some really horrible, fucked up shit. And I'm just wondering, you know, this podcast is about the disease of family dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And I think that the in my in my own personal story, like I don't blame my parents. I understand that they are just like a product of their upbringing as well, that this stuff just doesn't pop out of nowhere. It's passed from generation to generation. And I'm just wondering... Where do you stand on that now when you think about your dad, when you think about your grandparents? Um, has your has your thought process and opinion at all shifted on that? Um, so so yeah. <laughs> How do I feel about this? Well, um, so this would probably be the conversation that leads to that big F word, right? Are you gonna forgive? Do you think forgiveness is part of healing? So for me in my journey personally, and I and I cannot emphasize enough that a healing journey is personal. So any of your listeners that listen to this, that don't agree with what I'm about to say, it's perfectly okay. <laughs> um, I do not and will not at this point in my life ever forgive my father or my grandfather. Um, I have gotten to a point in my healing where um, I definitely am compassionate and understanding of the generational trauma. I can't imagine what it must have been like to grow up in a household with a with a pedophile abusing your sister. You know, I can't imagine the emotional abuse and neglect that must have gone on in that house, the dysfunction in that house that must have happened. I, however, also recognize that I came from that as well, right? I also had a really shitty childhood and I grew up in a really crappy environment. I have children and I would never, ever, ever, ever do to them what was done to me. Never intentionally, never, um, you know, if, if my, my oldest child and I, you know, we have a little bit of a, um, he's going through his own healing. My oldest child, I was in survival mode when I raised him in my early twenties. So there are definitely some fallout from that. I was not emotionally available. You know, I wasn't an abusive mother. Um, I was just not probably as nurturing as I would want to be. So, um, but I would never do, I would never betray my children the way my father betrayed me. I would never make them available to an abuser or protect someone that has, you know, intentionally hurt them. My grandfather spent his entire life molesting his daughter. He, you know, these are intentional choices. He was, my understanding is he was like, like he was raping her. I, I, I was never thankfully penetrated by my grandfather, not, not with his penis anyways. But I, I wasn't raped in that regard, like how my understanding of my aunt's abuse. Yeah, I I don't have any forgiveness for them. So my thoughts about them have changed in that I've developed more understanding and acceptance, compassion for the history and, and the idea of generational trauma. 
Um, but in my own personal journey, forgiveness or <clears throat> any type of shift in my thought at this point feels more re-traumatizing. Um, nobody was held accountable or, um, you know, there was no justice in, in my abuse. And for me, forgiveness feels like allowing them to, I mean, my symptoms are for a lifetime. There's, you know, I don't know that there'll ever come a day when I won't have flashbacks. You know, I might handle them better 10 years from now than I do now, but like I have a lifetime of, of effects and yeah, I, I letting, I'm, I can't let, they're not going to get away with it. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, my, my thoughts, I know that, I know that as a young kid, even in my twenties, I really loved my dad and I missed him. My dad died when I was 25. So my dad is gone now. Yeah. I was going to ask you, you reconnected with him at 21. I want, I wanted to follow up on that. Yeah. Yeah. So he got in touch with me through the family. It was really strained and stressed, um, tense, hostile. He never addressed, you know, what had happened or what he did. He always tried to talk about really mundane things like elevation differences between his state and mine and farmers markets and just, you know, things that at 20 some years old, when I'm still, I'm really angry, right? This isn't what I want to talk about. Um, I remember at one point I was on the phone with him and I did kind of get loud about, you know, what he did to me. So I feel like I don't have a lot of memory of it, but I think I did have a moment where I got to say my piece. Um, the day before he had his stroke, he sent me an email or I got an email about my cousin had been in a car accident. I snapped at him about, you know, how I, I wish that he would talk to me about something, you know, more important than family gossip. Uh, and then the next day I got the call, he had had a stroke. So, um, the two days later was a day after even that I can't remember. Like I have to look at his death certificate. I can, I can never remember if my dad died on the 9th or the 10th of July. Um, but yeah, he, it was very sudden, very quick. You know, I flew out, he was in a coma, he died the next day. Uh, and that was that, you know, no, no accountability, no justice, no apologies. Um, we hadn't really reconnected or rekindled anything. I was, I was still very young and didn't even, I don't think I had the capacity to understand maybe even the type of relationship I would have wanted with him. Um, I don't know that I, I don't know if you were alive what it would be like for me right now. Cause I went from feeling nothing to being so angry, you know, at him. I think I'm moving through my anger. I think it's just like, just a lot of grief, you know, cause trauma healing is grief work. What about your aunt? Did you ever, did you ever speak to her ever again? Is she still alive? That's pretty, that's an interesting situation or relationship. Um, her and I did stay in touch for a few years we had a falling out back in 2011 over politics and religion. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, and she, she was, so I'm of a more liberal mindset. She's of a much more conservative mindset. She started offering unsolicited advice online to me. I would post about doing like birth charts for my friends and I would get messages about having an open mind, letting, would let bad things in and, you know, scriptures and all these things. And it would, and it, it basically got to this point where I was being tag teamed by her and her oldest daughter, my cousin. And, and I kind of snapped back at them. And then the next thing I know, I was accused of, I, I guess, sticking demons on them because supposedly like something tried to attack my cousin while she slept. And it must have been the devil because they were trying to reach out to me and I was fighting it. Um, so that was the last I heard of her until, um, my daughter was born and her daughter, my oldest cousin reached out 
And we had some really weird back and forth solely centered around politics. And it was just like, okay. So we had some back and forth. My aunt sort of got back in touch with me. She sent me a package of photos and and stuff of my dad, but sent it without a return address, um, which was like, I, I wanted this, you know, the, it was like his report cards from childhood. I mean, I don't really have anything of my mom and dad. So, but it like, she sent it without a return address on it. She's never exchanged phone numbers with me. Um, since we've reconnected, I have no idea where she lives. Um, a couple times she's shown up on Facebook to scold me if I don't have a proper opinion on something. And then, yeah, she's really, you know, she hasn't, she doesn't talk to me. And then, um, two months ago I did my DNA on ancestry. And as soon as you ping on ancestry, anybody that's got an account, it like, so I showed up as this like huge blinking flash on the ancestry website for her. Cause she's like super knee deep in that and her, my dad's oldest brother. Um, and so they found my website back in March and they showed up out of the blue. I haven't talked to my, my, my dad's brother. I haven't seen him since the nineties, you know, I haven't talked to him since I told him where to go back around 2011. Yeah. And they both showed up in the public comments on my website last in March of this year to correct some facts about my story. So, um, so I told him where to go <laughs> again with another blog post. <laughs> um, so I've, um, you know, I think I always, so my, my dad's oldest brother, completely estranged, absolutely no intention or, or desire to get in touch. My dad's sister, I think I've always left a door open, hoping that she would show back up and let me know I'm good enough. Cause I feel like as the other's abuse victim of, a, we had, we shared the same abuser. I feel like, I think I have always felt like we should have this amazing connection. Um, but the way that they showed up recently made me realize for me, I've decided that I need to shut the door on that. I'm not interested in that side of my family. Well, she's so fucked up, you know, she must be, she must be. Um, they, they actually, my dad's brother, he was very, very cruel. I guess my mother had an affair. And so he showed up to let me know that they, uh, at least now they know that I am in fact, my dad's kid because my DNA proved that. So it's like, oh, great. So thank you for reaffirming that I, I didn't belong as a child. You guys all thought that I wasn't even part of the family. It's like, oh, fuck yourself. <laughs> um, but he's in his seventies. He's probably a miserable old man. So yeah, I'm sure they both are. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what would be a message of hope for those out there who maybe were once in your shoes or maybe for those who are kind of beginning their healing process, what would you tell them? Right. So, um, I, I always, I always say healing is so multifaceted. Um, it's really hard to pinpoint just a few things, you know, to tell a survivor that's just embarking or that's, you know, been healing and is feeling discouraged or just wondering what's going to happen next. Um, but if I were to narrow it down to a couple important things, one is I always recommend if you're a survivor, if you've suddenly realized you have a childhood that's potentially full of trauma, try to find professional help or some sort of a peer group or an agency in your area where you can get someone that's trained, you know, if that's available. But aside from that, survivor communities, survivor friends like this, those types of connections, those are really pivotal. And the reason those are pivotal is because the other two things that are most important, I think, for healing is um, patience. So our healing journeys are super individual. They're super personal. It's a journey of self-discovery. 
it's a journey of developing self-awareness, which feels super foreign and, and uncomfortable because most of us have lived dissociated and disconnected and not truly aware of our bodies, of our age, of our, of our, you know, like existence in a space, um, our relationships to other people. I've found that the more self-aware I get, the more, um, more times I have these panics about like, oh my God, I only have 30 years left to live. You know, when I, when I spent most of my life feeling very dissociated and invincible. So, um, patience because healing, healing is a choice we make every day. I've learned that, um, every day we wake up and we turn around, our childhood's there. Like it doesn't go away. We just decide how we're going to live in spite of it, moving forward, despite of it. So patience, learning how to trust yourself, learning self-awareness, learning how to cope with major emotions, learning how to identify major emotions, um, learning what your, um, your cycle of rest is. I, I call it the, the cycle of, express, of ex- explore, express, contain, where you you explore a topic. Maybe you just had a flashback. So you're exploring, what is this lesson to learn? Why did I have this flashback? Right now you're going to express, you're going to talk it out. Well, I had this flashback because it reminded me of this part of my you know, childhood, et cetera. And, and then you get to this contained part where you, now it's time to take a break and recharge and rest from the, that internal workout. Um, so patience, patience with your process, because it is a long, arduous, and complex process. And then the last thing is commitment. And that's because it really is a long and arduous and challenging process. You can't just do this for three months and then you're healed. We heal every day. We choose every day that if we are triggered by something, we're not going to respond in a trauma response way. If someone says something that, you know, causes us to feel something, we're going to step back and take a breath. Like there's all these choices we make. And we have to stay committed to that process. So with all of that, because that sounds horrible, right? Patience with this long lifetime journey, commitment to this long challenging journey. But oh my gosh, like watching my daughter grow, understanding and realizing that her emotional um, astuteness is so far beyond where I was, even at age 35, right? Like my six-year-old, you know, she just knowing that I'm there for my kids now, being connected to myself and my body and starting to recognize even things as small as like how, how worthy I am of being healthy, of feeling healthy of, you know, things like that. It's, it's a, it's a very rewarding process for all of the crap. (laughs) So, so for anybody that just got like, Oh my God, commitment and, and patience to this like lifetime thing, it's so worth it. It is so worth it. There will be days when you want to scream and pack it all up and forget about it and wish you'd never started. But there are way more days of just like, wow, life is better now. And the opportunity to be of service to others and to help others with their healing process, you know? I I never like I never set out on this in, intentional path to be like a, a healer, you know, or a um like a mentor or a coach or whatever you would call. I don't know if I really like any of those words. I call myself like an organizer, right? I'm a, I'm an organizer. I bring us all together around a cause, but we're letting people know they're not alone. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so important for all of us because abuse, childhood abuse is so isolating, even in a room full of people. Like I literally, I'm certain that it was a trauma survivor who coined the phrase that, you know, you can be around a million people and still feel so lonely. So yeah. So where can people find you? Um, so I'm most active on Instagram, surviving childhood trauma. 
Um, I have my Survivor Speak Live series on Mondays um, where you'll hear stories of survivors sharing their own traumas and their journeys. Um, I have my Trauma Talk Uncensored with Dr. Tanner Wallace every other Saturday um, where we just get real about trauma. And yeah, I have my thoughts over coffee and, you know, I just have a lot of fun with the reels and stuff. It's really just a mostly daily. I try to post every day, um, but sometimes I don't, sometimes I need a break. Um, it's just a day to day of my journey as a, as a survivor and the things that I'm learning as I go. I also have a website, survivingchildhoodtrauma.com. Um, that is my blog. So poetry, journaling prompts, um, you can sign up for my, I do have peer groups that I facilitate offline. Um, so you can sign up for those there. You can, you know, that's, that's just where you can find me and read all about me and the products and services that I offer. I mean, that's pretty much it. I am on Pinterest. Um, I think it's, it's SCT together there. A lot of that is just kind of cross posted. Honestly, Instagram and my website is the best place to plus best place to find me. So super. Well, thank you so much for your honesty, for your vulnerability and for all the good work that you're doing. Seriously. It is amazing. You're beautiful inside and out. And even though it's not your intention uh, initially, like you were helping so many fucking people. So I hope that you can sit in that and feel the gratitude there. So you're amazing. Thank you. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thank you, Shannon, so much for your vulnerability, for your honesty. You are truly an inspiration to me and to so many others. You can find links to her website and to her Instagram in the show notes, as well as a bunch of other resources related to complex PTSD. I'm going to skip Hit a Girl Up for today just because I think that that was plenty for today, but we will be picking that back up next week. Check the show notes for ways to reach out to me. If you have any comments, questions, insights, hit a girl up. I would love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at adultchildpod. Next week, I have an amazing interview with the co-authors of the memoir, The Lost Years, Surviving a Mother and Daughter's Worst Nightmare, Christina Wanzlack and her mother, Connie Curry. It's going to be super raw, super vulnerable, and I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie, I promise. I'm not